welcome. This is the second part of sibling rivalry in the 18th century, the Hunter Brothers and displays of the natural economy. In the first section, we spoke really about the milieu, if you like, the background, political and personal background of the 18th century London, the sort of circles that William and John Hunter moved in, the idea that both necessarily would become independent collectors of specimens was also important, and uh, a little bit about each particular one, the personalities of each, and what led, for example, William Hunter to uh, begin and complete his large book, The Human Gravid Uterus, um, dissecting through his brother John the bodies of 14 hapless women who made their way to the Covent Garden's dissecting rooms. In the second part, I want to talk a little bit about the differences of the collecting nature and museums of each and a little bit about their personal rivalry. The structure of the two Hunterian museums is, was a constant reminder of their sibling rivalry. John's museum was bought with parliamentary support by the Royal College of Surgeons in Lincoln's Inn's Fields. Although the government allocated £15,000 for the purchase of John's collection of papers and specimens, the Prime Minister Pitt had said that he would have, quote, preferred to spend the money on gunpowder, unquote. Despite limited governmental enthusiasm in 1796, Lord Auckland petitioned the uh, advisability of acquiring the collection, and on June the 13th, 1799, that £15,000 promised was paid. The College of Physicians actually refused the opportunity of being the custodian and it fell to the Corporation of Surgeons which established a 16-member board of trustees for its management and instead on strict guidelines that it should not be open to the public. The collection was open then for four hours in the forenoon on two days every week with an official being on hand to explain the details of the pieces and which would be accompanied by a lecture series covering comparative anatomy with no less than 24 lectures a year. The collection moved to its current locale in Lincoln's Inn's Fields in 1812 with a decision then to open it to the public by 1832. Most of the edifice was built by 1835 at a cost, astronomical cost, of about £40,000. Additional property for those who know London was then bought in Portugal Street in 1847 for a further £16,000 and the Upper Museum, incorporating a Western, Middle and Eastern room combined, was opened in 1855. Just for extra information, I think that between 1800 and 1833 there were over 32,200 visitors recorded. Once established, the museum was a frequent haunt of Charles Darwin as he was finishing his final manuscript for The Origin of the Species. Afterwards, in 1837, Darwin donated his fossil collection to the Hunterian Museum and its director, Sir Richard Owen, rather than to the British Museum. And the specimens were then reserved for the British Museum under its natural history section under Owen's directorship. And that was finally transferred in 1881.
Williams Museum remained on show in London for 30 years after his death, but was then moved in toto by his nephew Matthew Bailey as executor of Williams Estate to a specially designed building at Glasgow University, where it was officially opened in 1807. Visiting each museum today, one's immediately struck by the fundamental differences reflecting the personalities of their collectors. Williams' collection firstly can only be reached by appointment, or at least his special collection, and, no, uh, and, and one has to descend a small set of stone stairs under Thompson's building outside his main museum to find a rather meagre assortment of specimen jars, but a very moving collection of obstetric casts set along a couple of corridors with a very threadbare carpet underfoot. The main building, however, housing William's Artificialia and his insect collection, which was reputedly larger than that of Sir Joseph Banks, along with some of his portraits, is located in a Gothic cathedral, magnificent building, uh, that is grandiose and which outside pays homage to both brothers with small cameos of each at the front. Allied to William's non-anatomy collection is a separate Hunterian gallery which contains his state honours, medallions and coins, as well as his fine collection of paintings, including works by Jean-Simeon Chardin, Sir Godfrey Kneller, Peter Paul Rubens, Rembrandt, George Stubbs, and from the schools of Canaletto and Murillo. His paintings were what William called, quote, my highest pleasures, unquote, and are a testament to a thoughtful connoisseur who became Glasgow's most important cultural benefactor. Despite his large obstetric practice, he was a keen student of history, known for his soirees with the likes of Alexander Pope, and for his advocacy of an unfulfilled lyceum designed to combine anatomy, art and the curiosities from his own collections in the style of the Bolognese impresario El Dravandi. He was very competitive, and there were similar competitive contemporary private collections, such as those of the Duchess of Portland and the Duke of Richmond, with William's main competitor in corals at John Fothergill, and in medals Matthew Duane. The physician naturalist John Coakley Letsom had claimed William's coral collection, for example, to be, quote, foremost in Europe, unquote. So there was a lot of this kind of competition. There's a feeling in this museum, William's Museum, of a compact intimacy, the small bottled specimens fairly sedate. But there's a different kind of intimacy in the final corridor, which is devoted, as I've said, to that series of life-sized plaster casts of women cut open in different stages of their pregnancy. We've met these women before. These are the disembodied women of his great book, The Human Gravid Uterus. But in these casts, in these physical casts, more than their size, is an imposing textural authority, emphasising the fact that lying behind each simulacrum was a real human being. By contrast, John's museum is an elaborate two-storey affair housed in the upstairs halls of the Baroque College of Surgeons building. There's a large, pensive statue of him, John, outside, with no mention of William whatsoever. John's museum is exactly as one might expect, stately and eclectic, the acquisitive result of a man more interested in the science of everything than in the arts or any connection to the classics. Very different museum. 
It's the product of an obsessive and compulsive collector, someone who, before <coughs> any formal descriptive theory of evolution had been proffered, had given his own measured consideration to the progressive development of the species. Here's John's vast knowledge of what he called the animal economy, with the dissections of some 500 different species that included leopards, caracals, sloths, gibbons, peccaries, agoutis, choffs, servals, pangolins, lampreys, dolphins and whales. By comparison, William's collection, inventory by Bailey, included 30,000 coins, 2,000 geological specimens, 3,000 anatomy pieces, but also 8,000 shells and corals, 7,600 entomological specimens, 10,000 books and 60 paintings. Most of William's taxidermy specimens had deteriorated so badly that they were discarded in the early 1900s. But in John's museum, the healthy is packed alongside the diseased, with perhaps an overemphasis on the facial destructiveness of advanced syphilis. There are rows of prosthetic noses from which those with such a prevalent disease could choose, allowing them to at least get outside without frightening the neighbours. In John's museum, there is the uh, an environment where there's less intimacy and there are ushers wandering around to ensure that our iPhones are kept securely closed in our pockets. Even though they were very different men, John, like William, was in no doubt about the importance to society of his work. If the Hunter Museums reflected the difference in Hunterian personality, their similarities were both representative of the changing status of surgeons not only as researchers, but also as naturalists in the 18th century. And uh, at that time, surgery was so limited in its scope that restless men logically extended their attentions towards the dissection of animals and insects with a far healthier interest, I might say, than today in the field of comparative anatomy. They brought together a like-minded social elite which included non-scientists, erstwhile collectors, anatomists, and a cadre of gentlemen naturalists, many of whom shared membership of the Royal Society. John's ethos more than Williams was in dissection of the interior of whatever species, with the aim of correlating that inner structure with an observable external function, even if his museum order may have at times confused the preparation of rare specimens with an overarching exposition of natural history. His museum was divided into morbid human specimens that focused on generic diseases and the specific disease of organs alongside the normal appearances of comparative animal species. But it wasn't regarded by naturalists as a true museum of natural history, for example, rather as an expression of clinical rarity. Sir Joseph Banks, writing to his friend Lord Auckland, explained that Hunter's museum was, quote, not of consequence, and it would have uh, ordered specimens in a taxonomy the like of which Banks had never seen before. Perhaps even for Banks, Hunter's organisation of his collection might have done both anatomy and natural history somewhat of a disservice. In both Williams and John's case, the arrangement we see today of each museum is only, of course, an impression curators may have had of the mindset of the collector. 
and each brother perhaps might not recognise the layout of his lifetime's collection if he were confronted with it today. In William's case, there was an Herculean effort made at the turn of the 19th century by a Hunterian scholar, Dr John Teacher, to assess the place and importance of every piece he could find, cross-checking it with William's own catalogue and restoring the glass jars and mounts as necessary. He published it in his Anatomical and Pathological Preparations of Dr William Hunter, the Hunterian Museum, Glasgow, in 1900. John's museum, however, may bear little relationship to the extensive manuscripts describing precisely how his collection should be displayed. Given its sheer size, with over 500 stuffed animals and 5,000 wet preparations, John had preemptively anticipated that there might be difficulty in its exposition. But he certainly didn't anticipate that his brother-in-law, Sir Everard Home, would, through some folly and perhaps in fear of his own work, being discovered as Hunterian plagiarism, deliberately destroy all of John's papers in a fire. On John's death, Homer insisted on possession of Hunter's entire collection of papers, casebooks and catalogues, despite repeated requests by William Clift, who was curating the new museum, as well as by the College of Surgeons. Home refused to return them, and tragically burned all of Hunter's papers at his home in 1823, even preventing the fire brigade from entering the house and putting out the fire. Almost certainly he was plagiarising Hunter's work. He didn't want it found out. The anatomical collections of both men are in effect their temperaments and their individual histories. Their interaction towards the end of William's life reflects their particular obstinacy and competitiveness. William's genteel nature may have made him magnanimously giving John elocution lessons so as to improve his gruff lecturing style, but it belied the fact that William was at the best of times an extremely difficult man. As for John, the surgeon, one of his students, John Abernathy, described Hunter's frenetic lecturing style as one would come away with, quote, great difficulty in comprehending him. He wrote that, uh, in John Abernethy's Physiological Lectures, which was published in 1825. I think as can sometimes happen with biographers who enter into tasks, <clears throat> perhaps with preconceived notions of their subjects, adulation can soon sour and the personal frailties of their writing obsessions become apparent. Jane Oppenheimer from the Women's Liberal Arts College of Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, wrote in her 1946 Hunterian biography, um, which was New Aspects of John and William Hunter, she wrote um, that, this is of William, quote, the complexities inherent in his own constitution perhaps diverted Hunter from the direct forthrightness we desire of great men. It's a cutting epitaph to what we might consider not only a secretive and seemingly unforgiving man, but also to the avert paranoia that appears to be a rather common thread amongst old school anatomists. It almost uh, certainly, too, would have irked the elder brother that the star of his protege, the younger one, shone brighter than that of the teacher. It might have been overstated that the English historian Henry Thomas Buckle who held John in the highest esteem and felt him only second to Adam Smith amongst the 
quote, splendid catalogue of the great Scotchman of the 18th century, unquote. And he even placed him above David Hume on the philosophical tree. The reference Buckle uh, was making was in his unfinished History of Civilization, only the first two volumes of which were completed. Buckle actually died of typhoid fever whilst travelling through Damascus before completing this work. But it's very high praise indeed. Considering John, Oppenheimer wavers at one point, waxing lyrical and slotting him into the pantheon of Aristotle, William Harvey and Bichat, and claiming for him, that is for John, a scientific importance on par with Newton. She writes, before Hunter, surgery was a trade, but after him a science. The exaltation ultimately gives way, however, to near contempt, and almost immediately afterwards she walks back her position, writing that, quote, it sometimes seemed as if his understanding was troubled by the grandeur of its own conceptions, unquote. John became surgeon to King George III in the fateful year of 1776, the American independence, and the Prime Minister William Pitt saw fit to make John the inspector of hospitals in 1790, and then in 1793 Surgeon General of the Army during the turbulence of the French Revolution. John's abrasive personality became such an irritant to conventional medical society that he was forced to initiate a private lecture series which he delivered from the theatre at his Castle Street home, melding his radical views on basic physiology with the prevailing philosophies of the time and with the rather revolutionary concept that all treatment should emanate from observation alone. Bombastic and impatient, John had even inoculated himself with the fluid from a venereal penile ulcer of one of his patients in an edgy attempt to separate the manifestations of gonorrhea from those of syphilis, imagining uh, in error that they were merely different variants of the same disease. Having inadvertently injected himself with both he calmly reported his self-experiment in the book A Treatise on Venereal Disease, and although he claimed to have been cured of, quote, the lilies, which is an historical term for syphilis, this small, ill-advised experiment likely caused the prolonged delays between his engagement uh, and marriage to his fiancée Anne Holm. The treatise was written in 1787, in the journey, I suppose, of discovery of the quickest route from A to B, it uh, may sometimes not be the safest nor the most ethical, but it can certainly be the most appealing. And that type of self-experimentation has influenced many researchers and scientists frustrated by the lumbering hierarchy of traditional and safely regulated experimentation. It would, for example, be the same zeal that led Australia's Nobel laureate Barry Marshall to swallow a cocktail of the bacterium Helicobacter pylori to rush to a proof of it being the cause of stomach ulcers. Biographers have attributed the long engagement, for example, between Home and Hunter to the fact that Hunter had just returned from his military endeavours without sufficient funds to get married and due to his waiting for the proceeds from his latest publication on the treatise on the natural history of the teeth but it's much more likely that he was waiting for the mercury treatments that he was treating himself with to deal with the syphilis he just inoculated himself with uh, to actually get better. Some people have attributed his bombastic and mad behaviour to mercury poisoning.
think that's an interesting uh, idea. It's more likely that he postponed the marriage awaiting the impact of overt signs of syphilis from self-administered treatments of one sort or another. When William became bedbound after an apoplectic stroke, John relented on their feuding, and he looked after him in his final illness, even catheterising him to allow a freer passage of urine. But by the time William died, he'd amassed a vast practice that was earning an astronomical £10,000 annually, and his deportment was so highly regarded that Gentleman's Magazine devoted a two-page obituary to him in 1783. But few of William's colleagues came to his funeral at St James Church, Piccadilly. John also was not listed as attending. William left his nephew, Matthew Bailey, the staggering sum of £20,000, as well as the family home in Scotland. He also endowed £7,000 for a personal chair in anatomy. But he bequeathed his sister Dorothy, who had cared for him for many years, and through his last illness, only £100. And as for his brother John, William left nothing. Bailey actually generously handed the house at Long Calderwood over to John afterwards. By comparison with William's bearing, it's hardly surprising that John keeled over and died in the middle of an argument at a St George's Hospital board meeting, his brother-in-law, Everett Home, taking him straight back to Castle Street so that he could immediately perform an autopsy. John's demise might have been accelerated by a recent fight with his nemesis, the surgeon John Gunning, who'd opposed Holmes' appointment as house surgeon over Thomas Keat. That point's hard to uh, be certain of, since even Hunter had previously lambasted Holmes' technical skills, saying that, quote, his fingers were all thumbs and that he would never have sense enough to tie down a bottle, unquote. I think this was a different era. You can imagine Everett Home racing home to do a post-mortem on his brother-in-law. But it was a different era of sentimentality and decorum. When John's father-in-law, the surgeon Robert Home, Everett's father, died of a stroke in 1784, John and Everett performed the autopsy together. One of Robert Home's diseased kidneys was used as an exhibit in John's museum. On this dispassionate note, William Harvey had no hesitation in performing an autopsy on his father and then his sister when they died close in time to one another. Harvey quoting that he thought his father's colon looked rather large or that his sister's spleen seemed to be extremely large. Very strange sort of uh, 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 behaviour. Sir John Hunter keels over in the middle of an argument at the St George's Hospital boardroom. Before disbanding the meeting, the board dispassionately debated whether they should be bothered to send John's wife Anne an official hospital condolence note, and they decided against it. What an extraordinary sort of thing. He'd been working there for 30 years. The vote was against sending a condolence, even though Hunter's favourite pupil, William Henry Matthew, attended the meeting and also voted, probably in the negative. But for the serendipity of a Times notice which had announced in 1859 that the graveyard of St Martin's in the Fields, where John had been buried, was about to be cleared, his remains would have been lost. 
in an epic story, the naturalist Francis Buckland went to the cemetery, that's St Martin's, and searched the thousands of graves to find John's coffin, landing on it at the end of two full weeks' search on February the 22nd. Interest induced by Buckland, who was the son of a former dean of Westminster, was great enough to see Hunter reburied with full ceremony in Westminster Abbey on the 28th of March. The Leeds School of Medicine actually presented Buckland with a medal for finding John's coffin, of whom they called, quote, the greatest Englishman, unquote. Holding a lantern to the stench, Buckland said that he had, quote, found thousands upon thousands of jumbled and broken coffins crammed everywhere as if deposited by a tsunami. Other coffins also buried in St Mark's, like that of the scientist Robert Boyle, were never found. So Hunter's buried there on the left aisle uh, in Westminster Abbey. His stone is located in the north aisle of the nave, close to the dramatist Ben Jonson, and it reads, quote, a gifted interpreter of the divine power and wisdom at work in the laws of organic life and the grateful veneration for his service to mankind as the founder of scientific surgery. The poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge said in eulogy of him that, quote, that he presented to us in a more perfect language than that of words, the language of God himself as uttered by nature, that the true idea of life existed in the mind of John Hunter, I do not entertain the least doubt, unquote. And that comes from uh, Coleridge's Towards the Formation of a More Comprehensive Theory of Life, written in 1818. Beyond the hobnobbing with London's art set and liberati, and when he was not engaged at home with his paintings, William thrived on disputation, waging long vendettas against his enemies. At least in this, John was in agreement, both hunters locking horns with one of his students, Alexander Monroe, who referred to himself as Secundus, and whose father, Alexander, who referred to himself as Primus, had founded the medical school in Edinburgh. The rancorous dispute between the hunters and Secundus was over the course and structure of the minute lymphatic channels, leading away from the interstitial fluids and drawing fluid back into the smallest veins. Such channels had long been disputed, even since the days of Hippocrates, who had first discovered the small conglobate or collecting glands lying under the armpit in a woman with breast cancer. The Neapolitan surgeon Marco Aurelio Severino had found them in the uh, early 1600s, uh, mid-1650s perhaps, in the middle of his mastectomy specimens, and the French surgeon Jean-Louis Petit had traced them back in his patients to primary breast tumours. But there'd been the greatest excitement in 1622 when the Paduan anatomist Gasparo Aselli had shown the small linear threads which filled to bursting with milky fluid and which leached away from the edges of the intestines of all the dogs and sheep, cows, horses, cats and goats that he'd vivisected shortly after feeding them. Aselli named the channels the Lacteals, and his work was published posthumously by his colleagues Alexander Tendinus and Senator Septalius in 1626, with the first known colour images in an anatomy atlas. 
whilst disputes about the lymphatic anatomy had already arisen between the Swedish professor of medicine, Olas Rudbeck, and the Danish anatomist, Thomas Bartelin, both hunters took on Monroe Secundus and his father, Primus. When Secundus published a regurgitation of William Hunter's lectures on the lymphatics while still a student and tried to pass them off as his own work. Monroe also tried the same plagiarism ploy with another tutor, Johann Friedrich Meckel, about lymphatics uh, and, and a project that he'd covered Meckel's De Venus Lymphaticus Valvulolus that he'd copied and plagiarised. William was so certain of his great finding of this lymphatics that in his private notes he immodestly called it, quote, the greatest discovery both in physiology and pathology that anatomy has suggested since the discovery of circulation. I think the scientific dispute over discovery was a dominant aspect of the lives of most anatomists. Sir Charles Bell had fought openly with Francois Majondi over the structure of the spinal cord and its sensory and motor divisions. Gabriel Fallopio and Raldo Colombo had both claimed discovery, if you can use that word, of the clitoris. These sorts of disputes were not just confined to the anatomists. Galileo was very protective of his discoveries with a telescope. There was, of course, the celebrated argument between Leibniz and Newton over the method of calculus, and James Watt, Henry Cavendish and Antoine Lavoisier became embroiled in a controversy over the discovery that water was a chemical compound and not one of the basic earthly elements, so this kind of thing was not unique to the anatomists. I think what followed was some of the most acerbic slanging match about science and the public press between the two men and their surrogates, with Secundus clearly conceding that he'd heard most of the work in William's lectures anyway, a full three years before he'd published his own treatise in Berlin, that is, uh, Secundus's treatise. The vitriol between the two men spilled into the medical literature and generated a back-and-forth of spiteful editorials. Alexandra Monroe Secundus was considered brilliant, commencing his studies of anatomy at his father's medical school when he was 11 years old, whilst at the same time taking courses in Latin, Greek, philosophy, mathematics and history. Like Vesalius, Monroe Secundus secured the position of Professor of Anatomy in the same year that he graduated from medicine. And the reference comes from Munro's 1755 treatise, The De Testibus et Semine in Various Animalibus, on the testis and semen in diverse animals, which actually confused the description of the testicular seminiferous tubules with the lymphatic drainage of the testis. Anyway, as it happened, William Hunter had already demonstrated these tubules using minute cannulae and filling them with mercury. Hunter continued his public war of words against Monroe up until 1762 in a magazine called Critical Review, which publicly aired current medical controversies. And it also appeared in a privately published pamphlet, Medical Commentaries, Part 1, containing a plain and direct answer to Professor Monroe Jr., interspersed with remarks on the structure, functions and diseases of several parts of the human body which was published in London in 1762. 
Whilst redoing many of his experiments to support his claim, William pointed out that an anonymous open defence in the literature of Secundus had actually been written by his father. So uh, there was this kind of acrimony that was certainly um, going on. The vitriol between the two men spilled into the medical literature and it generated a back and forth of spiteful editorials that showed the pettiness of both men who were actually claiming discovery over anatomical territory that had already been described almost a hundred years before. It had appeared in a poorly subscribed and little read book, The Anatomia Hepatis, published in 1654 by the surgeon Francis Glisson. And um, the English manuscripts, it appears in Glisson, from Anatomia Hepatis, and that's available in the Welcome Unit of the History of Medicine. With many innovative teachers like the Hunters lecturing on their researches well before publishing them, there was no real clear process of attribution, and many would publish swathes of lectures as their own material. Secundus, for example, had published in 1783 on a communication between the lateral and third ventricles of the brain, which every anatomist now calls the foramen of Monroe. But he did so, ignoring the known works of Galen and Vesalius, which had clearly already described that same passageway. But even after conceding all of the fact that the lymphatics that the hunters and Monroe were arguing about had been discovered by Glisson a hundred years before, Hunter didn't finish there, switching his angst into a long-standing argument with another of his students, William Hewson, a man he had taken into his own home for apprenticeship. The two Williams had formed a partnership but had fallen out over the ownership of specimens Hewson had produced in the dissecting room of the Great Windmill Street School. And in this, Hunter had insisted that everything produced there was Hunterian property, and he dissolved their partnership, after which Hewson opened his own anatomy school at 36 Craven Street. Uh, so you can see that there's sort of acrimony over anatomical material. Just a bit about that Craven Street. Now, the house was occupied by Benjamin Franklin on and off between 1757 and 1775. It's now a Franklin Museum, although there's not a lot to see there. With Hewson rooming there from 1772 to 1774. Hewson had entered into a formal partnership with William Hunter at the Litchfield Street School in Soho. Following Hewson's untimely death, the Craven Street dissecting rooms were taken over by his assistant, Magnus Falconer, after whose death John Hunter purchased back some specimens which had been prepared earlier by Hewson for William. Um, and so these ultimately made their way back into the, um, uh, into the uh, John Hunter Museum. Uh, as for William Hewson, it was a sad end. The animus with William Hunter didn't last long. Hewson dying of overwhelming sepsis after inadvertently cutting himself in the Craven Street rooms whilst dissecting a decomposing corpse. So they're all pretty sort of sad stories. The Hunters 
one in the private sector and the other straddling both the private and the public spheres of medical practice, both set the stage for the rise of the public health system and the model of what a British public infirmary would look like. Both established the tradition of a clinician as the source of active research, whose basis was as much located in anatomy as it was a surgical narrative. In a letter to his mentor, Sir Joseph Banks, the French naturalist and ichthyologist Pierre-Marie-Auguste Broussonnet rather unfairly merged the identity of the two brothers, claiming that William Hunter's place would have been filled by his brother if he hadn't been confused with him. In the finish, although John was unable to relent and bring himself to even speak to William, who had been cruelly muted by a stroke, nothing could have been further from the truth. In Georgian England, the status of physicians and surgeons had already begun to transform under the hunters, even though part of their legacy and body acquisition remained suspect. They both, in different ways, had proven instrumental in changing the organisation of the medical institutions responsible for anatomical education and research, and they contributed, albeit in part, to the shift from France to England of the hospitals which attracted overseas medical students. There were a number of forces driving the popularity of the different schools, with the initial supremacy of the French teaching hospital centred around the particular experience of human dissection. In the early 19th century, part of the appeal of Parisian institutions lay in their restructuring and specialisation after the Napoleonic Wars. France led the way over England in both formal bedside teaching as well as in hospital-based research, with a substantially greater access to cadavers for dissection, as well as a measurably higher comparative publication output. Paris had already attracted the obstetrician William Smelly, Guy's surgeon Samuel Sharps, and George's senior surgeon Caesar, later Sir Caesar Hawkins, and the London Hospital's John Harrison. But soon the traffic of surgical students reversed across the English Channel, in part with the rise of the Edinburgh School under the forceful direction of the Munro dynasty, and which had developed a rather uniquely Scottish approach to teaching. There was already a strong tradition of mentorship with William Hunter training under Alexander Munro Primus, and then with Primus training under William Cheselden. In competition, London boasted a particularly eclectic set of medical luminaries at a time when there was a a proliferation of her specialist hospitals. In 1700, there were only four major hospitals in London which appointed physicians as honorary unsalaried consultants, St Bartholomew's, St Thomas's, Bethlehem Hospital and Christ's Hospital. By the first decade of the 19th century, there were 40 public institutions and a dozen private hospitals, with the addition of the main institutions, Westminster Hospital, Guy's, St George's and the Middlesex. In London, there were also the specialist infirmaries, the Lock Hospital for venereal diseases, the Misericordiae, the Magdalen Hospital for fallen women, the Smallpox Hospital, and a range of lunacy asylums and lying-in hospitals. London boasted some of the world's greatest physicians, including Guy's Thomas Hodgkin, Thomas Addison and Richard Bright, and St George's William Jenner. So they were specialist environments 
to get into and go to. The jewel of Edinburgh, which was her medical school, had signalled its cult of personality, only waning in popularity under its less-than-charismatic third head, Alexander Monroe, known as Tertius, and by all accounts the founder, Primus, had been an extraordinarily dynamic and innovative anatomy teacher, incorporating human dissections, vivisections, prosections and models into an extensive lecture program, accompanied by demonstrations of the wonders of the microscope. Four years before Primus had retired, Secundus was groomed to take over the faculty after having spent some time studying anatomy with William and John Hunter, as we've said, and then in Leiden with Albinus and in Berlin with Meckel. Secundus was appointed assistant to Primus in 1754 and assumed the full chair in 1758, presenting a highly popular lecture series in English, whilst his contemporaries at the university had only small audiences for their presentations in Latin. The uh, Secundus curriculum was virtually a reproduction of the lectures of Leiden's Professor Hermann Berhard. The school had suffered after introduction of the Tertius course, which was generally regarded as rather uninspiring, and which had resulted in a shift of interest in dissection back to London. The Edinburgh faculty had also lost favour because of the poor availability of corpses, with one of the anatomists, John Bell, complaining about his old school that, quote, in Dr Monroe's class, unless there be a fortunate succession of bloody murders, not three subjects are dissected in a year. Bell and his younger brother, Charles, were the natural successors of the Hunters, taking over the Great Windmill Street dissecting rooms in 1811. Charles Bell's students included Herbert Mayo and Sir Caesar Hawkins, and they bought the Great Windmill Anatomy School in 1826, but it was ultimately closed in 1839. Even though the Bells were engaged in the same business as the Hunters, they were in many ways Hunterian opposites. Both of the Bells were accomplished artists, liberally decorating their books on anatomical discovery with images that combined the structural accuracy with their impressions of the brutality of dissection. A bell image is instantly recognisable for its humanity, the tortured expression of the cadaver, often the first thing the eye is drawn to, even when the dissection's going on at a remote distance. At some point, the bell imagery has us wandering over and above the anatomy, where these cadavers came from, and what was the story of their lives. In contrast to the hunters, the older bell was the more abrasive, the younger more taciturn. Praised by students for his compassionate lectures, none of John's, that uh, John uh, Bell's Edinburgh colli uh, colleagues appreciated his style, and he was ultimately kicked out of the school when in 1800 he wrote a thinly veiled attack on the Professor of Medicine, James Gregory. The pamphlet, uh, somewhat provocatively entitled Letters on Professional Character and Manners, tried in vain <coughs> to overturn the arrangement that consultant surgeons to the Edinburgh Infirmary could only be appointed from the ranks of designated college fellows. Just before then, in 1799, John had been unable to control his passions rather injudiciously opening his own anatomy school directly opposite Surgeon's Hall and in direct conflict with an order from Secundus. 
Charles may have done nothing to deserve any opprobrium, but nevertheless he was caught up in the dispute, and in mitigation he offered the College of Surgeons his collection of anatomical models that he'd made and amassed, along with a hundred guineas of his own money, merely asking for the privilege of sitting in on and drawing some of the operative procedures being performed by their fellows. Well, the offer was declined, and with John's banishment, Charles felt obliged to follow him in 1804 uh, to London. After his encounter with Gregory, John never worked in the public hospital system again. Both brothers remained productive, however, with John writing and Charles illustrating John's magnum opus, his four-volume series, Anatomy of the Human Body, between 1799 and 1803. Charles produced his 1799 A System of Dissections, explaining the anatomy of the human body, the manner of displaying parts and their varieties in dissection. And Charles also wrote his 1803 essays on the arteries, brain and nerves. Neurology, neural anatomy was his big thing. His 1806 essays on the expression in painting was the inspiration for Charles Darwin's 1872 book, the expression of emotions in man and animals, and it was part of an unsuccessful attempt by Charles to persuade the Royal Academy of Arts to appoint him to William Hunter's old post as consulting professor of surgery. Through his remarkable research on the spinal cord and in reformulating the structure of the central and peripheral nervous system, Charles was finally rehabilitated, and in 1824 he was appointed the first Professor of Anatomy and Surgery at the Royal College of Surgeons London, the first Professor of Physiology at King's College in London in 1821, and then a Knight of the Guelphic Order, a rather special order, in 1831, and ultimately Professor of Surgery back at his old university, the University of Edinburgh, in 1835. He tried to sell his collection of models and moulages to the College of, uh, um, of Surgeons at Edinburgh all those years ago, but now returning as their Professor of Surgery in 1835, he would have wryly appreciated the irony of his sale of over a thousand wax moulages that he'd accumulated and restored back to Surgeons Hall in Edinburgh in 1824 for the princely sum of £3,000. Bell's wax model collection, where he referred to as his Museum of Anatomy, was received and catalogued by Professor Robert Knox, who later became very embroiled in the Birkenhair scandal of body snatching and was ultimately disgraced. Another person who had to leave Edinburgh and go down to London, really to do very little practice ever again. He ended up writing more about fishing Robert Knox than about uh, surgical and anatomical practice. The collection that Charles Bell had sent over to Edinburgh was so large that it was decided to rebuild Surgeons Hall altogether in 1832 to accommodate Bell's pieces with their pre-existing collections. As for John Bell, after a fall from his horse, he retired and moved to Italy for treatment. He's buried in the Protestant cemetery, what's called the Cimitiero e Cattolico per gli stranieri, for the strangers or foreigners, in Testaccia, Rome. And he's buried on a grassy knoll just behind the tomb of the poet John Keats.